Our text this morning comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. They say, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in God, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would feed our souls on it now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you would have a seat this morning, I'm going to start us off in uh, maybe a down place. But uh, the City Church is going to be a place over the course of years uh, where we want to be real. We want to start in the low places if that's where we need to be. We want to celebrate if that's where we need to be. And uh, so I just have a confession for you this morning. I I kind of started off this week in a really low place. Um, Started off, honestly, a little blue, a little down a little depressed. Um, And I know that uh, for plenty of people that are here uh, in this congregation, as a part of City Church, uh, you know that those uh, seasons, those times, whether it's days, months, or years, can be really, really hard. And, uh, and I know that you know exactly, uh, you know, how hard it can be because I know that there are lots of people within this congregation that know precisely what I'm talking about. But we also know that it is hard as a Christian to know exactly, like precisely, how to think about seasons of depressive feelings. Because we know that we're a part of a different kingdom. We know that we're to have hope, deep and abiding joy and hope, uh, but that's not always how we feel. And I know that uh, as a pastor, over the course of a long period of time, now uh, somewhere around 13 years, uh, I know that many in our congregation struggle on and off with depression because you tell me, I've had countless coffees with people that have said, hey, listen, this is just where I'm at. I'm feeling really blue. Uh, Whether it's uh, just immediately after having uh, kids and having hormonal changes or whether or not it's uh, uh, trauma that you've experienced in the past, just kind of bubbling up to the surface in ways that have made you uh, feel depressed. Whether it is something that for you, you are grieving a loss, whether it is uh, hurt that you are experiencing in your marriage, whatever it is, I know that people here as a part of this body, many people uh, experience depression. And in fact, uh, I know this uh, uh, so intimately because my wife and I have had probably the better part of a dozen times where people within our congregation have actually given us their guns just because they're afraid of having those in the house, and they just asked and entrusted us, hey, you know, will you take these for a season? Like, that's how, that's how rough it's been before. And in fact, many of you haven't been here long enough to know this, but we actually had a man that had started coming here as a part of our congregation for the better part of a year or so that had been in the military, had, you know, just endured a lot of trauma there, uh, had also just been from a broken home. Uh, he himself was estranged uh, from his children. It was a really dark and depressing time, and he used a shotgun to end his life. He was a friend. His name was James, and that was a person that was here at City Church. So this is not something that is like abstract, unreal. Uh, it, it feels very real to many of us that there is real depression. 
But I want you to know, even though we're kind of starting in maybe a uh, darker place, we're going, we're heading towards the light this morning. I want you to know that if that's uh, part of your story, if you feel those things on a regular basis, I want you to know that you're not alone, that uh, here at City Church, you're not going to be left alone. If you let us know that, we're going to actually talk and, 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 and know that about one another and uh, not leave you alone, not leave you in the midst of feeling those things without providing like a context and community, but maybe even more so, I want you to know right from the get-go that you are infinitely loved that the God of this universe really has like created you. He knitted you together. He knows every head, uh, hair on your head. He knows every thought and affection of your hearts, and he loves you. He cares for you. He loves your life. And though, although depression is essentially the effects of sin uh, in our bodies and our minds and our souls and spirits, uh, even though it's an effect of sin on this world, even though uh, we wouldn't claim it as Christians, we wouldn't claim depression as a part of the kingdom of God. It's not something that is meant to be. It's not something that's supposed to be a part of your life. What we can know is, is that it's a regular part of the human experience. So even though it's sin, it is something that other people struggle with. And though uh, hopefully not perverse, there's a sense of comfort just in knowing that you're not the only one that experiences that if you do. I was talking with a friend earlier this week uh, about the feelings that I was feeling, and uh, he asked specifically, how do you typically deal with seasons of depression? And, and I, here's what I think. I think that what was behind the question was like, hey, I, I struggle with this too. I want to know how a pastor deals with this because a pastor probably deals with depressive sensibilities and emotions uh, better than the rest of us. And I immediately said, I normally like shrink back. I get in my own head. I uh, pretend. I kind of stuff feelings and pretend like they're not a part of it. I distract myself with YouTube and uh, lots of other things. So I, I, my immediate reaction to these things is not altogether healthy. And I imagine that for a lot of us, uh, we feel the same way. We see those same kinds of patterns uh, actually kind of coming out. So uh, I do. I, I get into my own head. Uh, and I start justifying and kind of rationalizing emotions that I have, whether it's like disgruntledness or like discontentedness or, you know, uh, all of the things that I'm feeling. I'll try to find ways of like blaming that on other people or doing a lot of justification and rationalization inside of my own heart. So that's generally where I go first. Not exactly the most positive place to go. Uh, I, I do also, though, try to talk myself out of it. I try to go, hey, things really aren't that bad, uh, which sometimes works because sometimes the depressive feelings that I have are like circumstantial. And just by getting my head above those feelings, like I can get a little clearer view. But when the cloud just kind of rolls in, when it sits on top of you, trying to like talk yourself out of it, not always the most useful tactic, uh, tactics, especially not the most enduring tactic. What I do when I try to make those things is I try to make comparisons. So even like this week, I can tell you that like there was a weird sense of comfort that I got uh, from reading actually just a news story. There were these two brothers named uh, Zolt and Giza. Uh, I, think, I think it's pronounced Pilati, but I don't really know. They're from Budapest. I was reading about their lives, and they, uh, they had lost their mother. Their mother was dead. Even before that, they were estranged from their mom. She was evidently a really severe woman. Seems like maybe she was uh, bipolar, perhaps, but she had essentially abandoned them. And they were in their 40s, and the only thing that they really had at all in this world was one another. They were living in a cave outside of Budapest. 
They were homeless. They didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. They didn't take care of themselves. Hygiene was not a part of their lives. They, they were essentially uh, lonely. They didn't have spouses. There was no prospect of a spouse. They were isolated from society. People wouldn't even look at them. And I was thinking, you know what? I got it pretty good. You want to know why? Because I do actually have it really good. And so, like, trying to talk myself out of, like, a depression is something that's like, hey, sometimes just by simple comparison, you can kind of go, hey, things aren't so bad. Here's the trick. That doesn't go very far. At some point, uh, what I do do, what was kind of, out, uh, like, the answer, the real answer to my friend's question, was recognize the cheapness and kind of self-centeredness of a lot of the things that I try to do to like cope with depression, and eventually, by God's grace, I'll turn towards the word of the Lord. And, and here's just a, a little aside. I want you to know this. Um, I, I grew up and had a lot more of these kinds of feelings in like, you know, early high school into college. And I really am convinced in my mind that just proximity to the word of the Lord has made these a lot less frequent, frequent and a lot less severe. So if you're really wanting like, hey, is there any kind of like antidote that you can give me, especially over the course of the time, I would tell you that nearness to the word of the Lord is something that is healing. It is a balm to the soul. And so that's exactly where I ended up this week, not just because I had to study Galatians in order to preach it this week, but because I really honestly believe that the Spirit of God spoke through the word of God to my depressed soul. And so this morning, what I want you to know is, is that I may have been blue this week, but I am excited to listen to God speak with you this morning. And I want for us this morning to pay attention, because if we pay attention, here's what I think we'll learn. I think that what we'll learn is, is that prepositions, yes, prepositions, we're going grammar this morning, prepositions that are in this passage actually tell us everything that we need to know about our life as Christians, Prepositions tell us everything we need to know about our life as Christians. And if you think that maybe that's a little silly or you don't see the connection, I'm so excited for you to go on this journey with me this morning because it truly has been freeing. You, you know that as we go through the book of Galatians, we're discovering that we are freed by faith. And what I want you to get is a new and renewed vision of what that statement even means. We are, we can be freed by faith we're freed from depression in Galatians 3, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, I think gives us a really clear view of what that can look like. And it doesn't in this really cool way. There's kind of like a before and after picture. You've seen the before and after pictures, like whether it's P90X or whatever the new thing is. I'm clearly not engaged in like the exercise, you know, uh, lifestyle and everything. But you've seen the before and after, after pictures. What you've never seen is a before and after picture of your soul. Uh, what, what did my soul look like before faith, and what does it look like after faith has come? And that's precisely where we're going to start, because look at verse 23. It says, now, before faith came. We're going to get a before picture here. What was it like before faith came? What does it look like? What does that before picture look like? And it says this, we were held captive under the law. 
Now, last week, if you joined us, Dave Bruskus preached. He was our guest that morning, uh, that morning, and what he said is that the law locks us up, and this is just a restatement of that. We were held captive under the law. The law of the Lord sets clear standards and boundaries for what righteousness looks like, that we might know what sin is. So the law, what it does is it illuminates what sin is, it sets the boundaries of what righteousness looks like, and then we know that everything outside of that is sin. And when we can understand what sin is and then see it in our own lives, it leaves us imprisoned. It illuminates what that sin is and it leaves us captive, it says here. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says this, why do we see that uh, the law kind of locks us up? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. By works of the law, no human being is justified. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what the law does, okay? So you've heard that. You've heard us repeat it over and over as we kind of step through Galatians. You need to know it. You need to know that there is no one that is justified by the law. The law is not evil. It actually sets a standard of righteousness. It is, we're going to find right now, something that actually brings us along, that actually shows us what this looks like. And so it says that we were imprisoned. Look there. Look there in verse 23. It says that we are imprisoned. And then it says why we were imprisoned. So then, the, gar- uh, the law was our guardian. The law set the standard, so we are imprisoned. And and many translators render this idea of guardian being like a tutor, a governess, something for a small child to bring them up in knowledge. And I think that that's probably right, but here's, I'm going to disagree with some commentators. I don't often do that because I'm not like a Greek expert or anything else. But here, we see that Paul is using, you are captive, you are imprisoned. And then he uses the word guardian. Maybe it's this like shepherding along, it's this uh, governess, it's this tutor that is showing and illuminating. But for me, when I see this word guardian right next to the word imprisoned or captive, it may be that it's somebody that's trying to usher you along, a schoolmaster, a teacher. We know that that's true because the law is written on our hearts. We know that in some sense the law helped uh, humanity develop a sense of right and wrong, that actually everybody in this whole world actually has some bit or sense of what the law is because God gave the law. He gave his moral law. We have some understanding of what it is to be right and wrong really across society. It's one of the things that I think builds societies. You'll hear people talk about Western civilization. Some people will talk about it negatively, others positively. Here's what I think. I think that the law of the Lord writes itself on our hearts, that we have some form of conviction about what that is, and that it allows us to live together, to build communities, to build families, to build cities, that there is actually this thing called civilization that arises out of a common sense of what is right and wrong. And I think that we did have a schoolmaster, a teacher in the law that did this, but I don't think that it's a coincidence that imprison is right next to guardian. They're used together for a purpose. When you are in prison, it's a guard who determines and regulates what you do day in and day out. We'll let you have yard time. You can go to the restroom now. Now it's time to go to the mess hall. The, the law was a guardian. It actually, uh, yes, it did captive you. It did actually bring a law and a standard that put you in that place. 
And then it regulates who you are as a guard. That's what the law is doing. But it says all of this before faith came. If you want to know what that before picture for your soul looked like, before faith came, the law was both a prison and a guard. It held you lock and key. But that's not the gospel. That's not what we believe as Christians leads to eternal life. We don't believe that the law, this prison, actually leads you to life. What the gospel is, is not that we are under the law, that we are imprisoned by the law, that we are guarded by the law, but that we are freed by faith. And so when we hear these words say, not until faith came, there's two times, and I want you to circle them. I want you to study the word with me this morning. There's twice where the word until is used. If you have an ESV, that's the word that's used here. Twice. Circle them both. Underline them. And I want you to see this word until raise your gospel hopes. I want, to see, I want you to see in these, these two words until I want to see your depression fade in them because there is hope. It says this, we're held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. But, but if you've been with us, there's a bit of a problem here, okay? If you're paying really close attention to what Galatians is saying, what it has been saying is, is that faith was already there. Who was the man that had faith. It was Abraham. Abraham lived by faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now Paul is saying that you are imprisoned by the law, which came 430 years after Abraham. He's been building this whole case. Why is he now trying to tear it down in some sense by using the word faith? It's very confusing. We're held captive under the law until faith came and would be revealed. He goes on to tell us who this faith is. The law was our guardian until Christ came. This is such a cool point. If you've wandered off, I really want you to get this. The reason why Paul has been building this case for Abraham being saved by faith and then the law coming in and acting as an imprisonment and a guardian to shepherd us towards faith by way of justification and now uses this word until faith came is because he's not talking about faith in abstraction. He's using it to personify a person and if we look here, if we look right here in the text, we find that it is Christ that is the personification of faith. Christ is the personification of faith. In this passage, you will not understand it if you're reading until faith came and you're thinking about some new covenant of faith, something outside of the covenant of grace. If you're thinking about it just in terms of faith and you're not seeing Christ being exalted in this passage as the faith, then you'll miss the entire point. Before faith came, until the coming of faith would be revealed, shows us that faith is Jesus Christ. It's a person. Before faith came, the law imprisoned and guarded, but faith has come in the person of Jesus. Prove it to you? Gladly. I'd love to prove this to you. Look at verse 25. After. This is the after picture but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, so now we get this before picture with the law. Now we're getting it after faith has come. After Jesus has come, we get this picture. Faith has 
come, but what now? What are the effects? What does it mean for us? Well, first, it tells us right there in that passage, verse 25, it says, we are no longer under a guardian. Okay, so before, picture, we've got imprisonment, we've got guardian, we've got knowledge of sin. After Jesus comes, no more guard. There's nobody guarding you. If you feel imprisoned, if part of your depression is actually attached to feeling enslaved and just uh, caught up in and unable to get out of a prison, you need to hear there's no more guard for you. The guard has been gone. He's been done away with. You are freed by faith. Man, what amazing, beautiful news that we are no longer under a guardian. We are free. We are freed by faith. Faith incarnate in the person of Jesus. Hope that we uh, all held Hope that we all were held captive by the law and sin and depressive and suicidal thoughts. Now we can actually know the person of faith. Would would that we be the kind of church that doesn't live in captivity by the law and sin. Would that we be the type of uh, church that there is no more captivity in depression. What an amazing place City Church would be if we all lived in freedom not in depression. Wouldn't that be amazing? I know and can hear my own doubts like start percolating. I'm not sure we can be that kind of place. But you know what the message of this passage is? We can be precisely that kind of place. How? By faith. By faith in Jesus. Faith incarnate. Would that we were able to see our shackles disintegrate and the buttresses of our imprisonment crumble and breathe the free air of freedom. Would that this place be that kind of place that when you come in, you understand that there is something very dreadfully wrong with your soul because of sin, but that in this place, there is no judgment for that. You're not going to find at City Church a place where people judge you because of depressive feelings or because of what you've done in a given week. This is a place of freedom. Amen? This is a place of freedom. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you're able to breathe in the midst of it. Would that this be a place that your souls know that there is no longer a guard or a lock, but a one true liberator, one true freedom maker, one faith named Jesus. Man, I want to be that kind of place, City Church. But the second thing that we learn here in the second half of the passage is about those prepositions, okay? That's what we're going to learn. I want you to start on a, like a treasure hunt for these prepositions. And we're going to do a little bit of Bible study. It might feel a little like mechanical going through, but then I want to actually come and bring all of that stuff back in and kind of tie it together in the end. We get new prepositions. Do you hear me, church? In a culture that is like weirdly like all caught up in pronouns, he and him and her and other words that you've never heard before. Everybody's making the mistake that they think that they are defined by their pronouns. And what Galatians chapter 3 is saying is that you are defined by the prepositions. Let's go on a hunt. Verse 26. What does verse 26 read? Read it with me. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
Did you hear the preposition in there? Verse 26 says that you are a son of God, that you are an heir of God, that you are actually God's child. If you are in Christ, if you are in faith, if you have faith in him, you are a son of God, what? In Christ. You're a son in Christ. This Greek word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce to you because I just, I don't get it. I, I can like, I can listen to it on the little Google Translate thing and I can practice it. And then I get in front of a group of people and I look at it and I'm like, I'm not, I can't, I just, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to try to say the word, okay? Starts with an H, all right? That's, what, that's as far as I'm going this morning. But it's a legal term for an adopted son, a right inheritor. A, a person that's an inheritor, a person that is in the lineage, you are a son or daughter of God in Christ. Verse 27 says this, you were also baptized into Christ. So you're not just in Christ, you were baptized into Christ. That means that your old self, all of your sin has now died with Christ, baptized into Jesus' death. If, you're ever, if you remember just a few weeks ago when we had these baptisms up here, if you're wondering what that was all about, it was a symbol of that dying into Jesus. Jesus came and he took your sin and he died for it and you were in that baptism. You were in that death. You were baptized into Christ. You're a son of God in Christ. You were baptized into Christ's death. But then immediately after that, it says you also put on Christ. Your new self is resurrected and puts on the righteousness of Christ. You're baptized into his death and you're resurrected into his righteous life. That's what baptism is. So you're in, you're into, and you're on. You're putting on that righteousness Verse 28 says that we are all one in Christ. You are no longer isolated. You're no longer alone. You're no longer defined by anything else in your life. You see that in that verse? It says it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't even matter, interestingly, here at Culturally, whether you're male or female. If you are in Christ, you are unified. You are one in Christ, in, into, on, in Christ. And there's one more in verse 29. It says, you are Christ's. If you are Christ's means that if you have put faith, you can actually be Christ's. For all of us that are like struggling with like some sense of like abandonment and isolation, for anybody who uh, maybe just like those two brothers earlier, never knew anybody else in your family and the one person that you did know was very severe to you and then left you, isolated and then died and you feel like alone, like if that's what you're feeling this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are Jesus's. It's like he's saying, come over here. You're mine. You're my friend, my son, my daughter. I, I got gotcha. you. You are Christ's. And that means that if you are Christ, that through faith you can be Christ. And we see this echoed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that tells you, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God. That's what that verse says. You're not alone. You are his. 
All of these prepositions, in, into, on, in, are, lead us to a place where we can see that all of these prepositions tell us that if we are in him, if we have been baptized into him, if we have put him on, if we are unified in him, if we are his, read that last verse with me. You are Abraham's offspring by faith. Remember, how do you become Abraham's offspring? Is it by being circumcised? Is it by being Jewish? Is it by being born in the right geography, to the right family, to the right tribe? No, 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 it's through faith. You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Isn't that amazing news? That just simply by faith, you can actually be this kind of loved. There was a reason why I was uh, reading that uh, story earlier about Zolt and about uh, Giza, the, uh, uh, the brothers that lived in the cave, the homeless, stinky, unloved, abandoned, like no, no prospects of like, you know, anybody that's going to come along and build like an enduring life partnership with them in their 40s. There's a reason why I was telling you about that. It's because they were in their cave one day outside of Budapest and a humanitarian worker came in and told them that they had found out, this is a real story, not from like 1940, from 2007 or 8, this humanitarian worker had been looking for them to let them know that their, their grandmother had died. They were like, man, great news, we already felt abandoned, we didn't even know we had a grandmother. But it turns out this particular grandmother was a German billionaire. And simply by being legally the offspring of this German woman that they had never met, they were not given $6.6 million, but they were the heirs to a $6.6 billion fortune. That's a real thing that really happened in this world. It's like the greatest news story that you feel like you should have heard about sometime. I mean, it's incredible. These guys thought that they were isolated and alone, that no woman would ever take them, that they were going to be just destitute in this cave forever, this cave of despair. And this person walked in and said, because you are legally, because you are legally the heir of this tremendous fortune, it's yours. It's yours. I want to make this real to you. I mean really real to you. There's some sense in which like a person could barge through that door and march up to you and say that you are an heir of a $6.6 billion fortune and it would pale in comparison to the inheritance of the kingdom that is yours in Jesus Christ. I mean that's incredible. You are the heir of the promises. Simply by virtue of legal standing, you have wealth beyond your wildest dreams and comprehension. You have a kingdom that is not $6.6 billion that you can figure out how to fritter away in the midst of the next three decades of your life, but an eternal inheritance that is indescribably, unimaginably great that the prophet John was just trying to find like an attached, like human words to describe this kingdom that is going to exist forever. And guess what? You're going to be there. And the better news isn't just that you're going to be there. It's going to be that you're there with Christ forever. 
why is it then that we play in these caves of despair? If I can revisit just for a moment the things that I was thinking and feeling earlier this week, why is it so easy that a, that a person that, like, you know, has found himself in his late 30s really knowing, I mean, in my heart, just knowing I'm in Christ. I was baptized into his death. I have put on Christ's righteousness. I've been unified together with all of these other people that have, by faith, become inheritors of the kingdom, and yet I choose and feel these caves of despair in my life. Man, there is good application for us this morning. It is our Christian duty to remember and to remind one another of the gospel and, and, and not just the gospel, the gospel of who you are. These prepositions are for you this morning. They're just simple words, but they tell you who you are. Prepositions really do tell us everything we need to know about being Christians. We are, by faith, Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promises of God. You are blessed, unimaginably blessed this morning, and the kingdom is thine. It's yours. You've already got it. You don't have to work one more second for it. We are sons and daughters of God with an immutable legal standing with the owner of this universe who's ready to give you all things in Jesus Christ. That, that's yours. It's already yours. You don't have to do anything for it. You have eternal rights as a son or daughter. <clears throat> we can know that that old self of sin those things that we haven't even told our spouse, the, the, the things that we look at, the things that we do, the ways that we occupy our time, the things that we treasure, the way that we feel, those things that are unknown to anybody else that is the old self has actually been crucified, dead, and buried with Christ. It's gone. It's finished. It's done. All of those things, past, present, future, all of that is dead and buried into Christ's baptism. We can know as Christians, as true Christians, that we have taken the cloaks of Jesus Christ's righteousness and they have been set on us. We have put them on. You are righteous. So righteous that when the God of this universe looks at you in the midst of whatever you are in, in the midst of whatever depression you're in, in the midst of whatever secret sin you are in, what does he see standing there but the righteousness of Christ? You put it on. You can put it on. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to feel like you've got to earn one more uh, bit of God's grace and favor. All of those old sins have been finished, and you do not need to work anymore for the robes of righteousness that are yours in Christ. Our new self of Christ's very own righteousness have already been given to you and you can live in them. And lastly, I, I want to read this last point because it is just something that all of us need to hear and know that actually has an impact today. I'm going to reread this section. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, I'm going to stop there. You understand that at this point in time, the Jews thought that they were saved by God because of their, uh, their literal genealogical like heritage. I'm a son of Abraham. I can like literally trace it back. 
I'm, the, this, I'm part of the tribe of Benjamin. I, I've got it. The Greeks thought that they would be saved by their knowledge, by their ability to philosophize and think and understand. The Jews thought that it would be because of their, yeah, just genealogy. This is telling us no way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is that saying? Is that saying that if you are a woman and you desperately long to see women valued and venerated and loved and cared for and treasured and built up in our society, that you can't identify as a woman? No, that's not what that means. That means that you are not going to be saved by your femininity, but you're not going to be excluded either. Why? Because you're part of this one body of Christ that you are in. If you think that you're going to be saved by your masculinity, by your maleness, if you think that you have some privileged standing in God's kingdom, that you are more likely to enter God's kingdom because of your gender, you're out of your mind. And it's the best news ever. Because in Christ, we've all been unified together into one body, one spirit, one salvation, And it's the best news on earth. So I just want to end by telling you that this is all just like a a stand-in. It's an ersatz. It's it's something that is uh, supposed to like symbolize one thing. And I want you to own it this morning. You're a Christian. All of these prepositions are not pointing to you nearly as much as they are pointing to Christ, right? You are in Christ. Yes, you are in Christ. You were baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. You are unified in Christ. You are a Christian. And in a world that tells you that that is your least valuable asset, in a world that will demean you because of your, maybe even persecute you because of your identification with Christ, what what Paul is going out of his way in doing this morning to us, not just to the Galatians, but to us, is to make sure that you know that the greatest thing that you could be called in this universe is a Christian. So I'm going to pray that over you this morning. Bow with me. Father, I ask that you would help us to remember who we are. We are Christians. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember who we are in I pray that you would help us to believe who we were baptized into. Father, I pray that you would help us to know uh, at a deep level who we have put on. I pray that you would help City Church know who we are unified in. I pray that you would help us to know who we are. We are Christians. We bear the name of Christ. We are light bearers in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would out of your great grace. Give us the opportunity to be lit up by this truth and to conquer our fears and to be brought out of caves of despair and to be willing just to share that uh, we've been off of uh, anxiety medication for several weeks and God is upholding and sustaining Be willing to say, uh, God, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm experiencing 
just dreadful depression. I pray that you would help us to build transformative Christian friendships here at City Church that would allow us to just tell another person I've thought about ending my own life recently and I need help remembering who I am in Jesus. Father, that's the kind of place that City Church wants to be, aspires to be, needs to be. So, Father, we we are not able to do anything other than draw near to your word and see these great truths about Christians and about Christ. But you are far more able to let us know and understand and believe in our inward parts all of these great truths. And so we pray that you would do it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.